Hello and welcome to Between the Gutters. This is Albert Lamb. And I'm Drew Tan. And we are the Gutter Knights. <laughs> Gutterers. The Between the Gutternesses. I'm still working on a thing that we can call ourselves and our fans. Thanks for listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Before we uh, start, I really uh, we, we had a discussion where we really felt that it was appropriate and necessary that we explain the origin, or secret origin, of our podcast title. Yeah, so, as you know, we're calling ourselves Between the Gutters, and the reason for that is multifaceted. First of all, before we, uh, while we were coming up with names, I came up with a, a list of them and showed them to Albert, and he didn't like most of them, so Between the Gutters was the one he, fe- he hated the least, I think. <laughs> All of our decisions are predicated on how little we hate them. Exactly. Sometimes we're trying to decide what to eat for dinner, and all we, all we can think of is, what are you not in the mood for? What do you hate? What exactly. food do you hate to eat? And you know, that's how we whittle down our life's decisions. Exactly. That's how it worked for the name of this podcast. Uh, we're calling ourselves Between the Gutters. Not only because of that, but also because it says something about comics, uh, the gutters, are the spaces between panels when you read a comic. So just thought it was really fitting, something that harkens back to the idea of comics in our name, but it's also pretty catchy. Uh, also, uh, social media, uh, we were able to grab the handle. I mean, nobody was using it. Uh, looked up other podcast names. Nobody had a podcast name between the gutters that I could find. I also uh, felt that you know, the gutters is a good description of where we come from because me and Drew are deviants. Yeah. <laughs> We're troglodytes who just exist outside of society. So we're at the bottom rung of everything. Yeah, people, we're, we are. If we're in the gutters, <laughs> if we're between the gutters, people are just walking all over us, <laughs> spinning down our holes. And, <laughs> and that's where we are, reading our comics so that we can talk about them. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks for listening to Between the Gutters. So as you know, we've been, we've started our podcast talking about the top 25 Marvel comics of all time. And last week, or in our first episode, we counted down the f- 25 through 21. If you want to check out the comics that we discussed, look up our first episode. But today, uh, we'll get on with our list. And just as a refresher, uh, this list that we came up with was completely scientific because we came up with a set of criteria and we graded all our comics based on these four criteria tallied up the scores, and let the numbers do the rest. Just to reiterate our criteria, first of all, we had we looked at the craft. So is the comic technically sound? Is it well-written, well-illustrated? Is the storytelling clever? Did, they, did the creators demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? Second criteria was originality. Is it creative, original? Does it uh, do something new? Yeah, does it do something new? Does, does it have a message to impart to the reader. Third criteria is impact. That's just what sort of lasting influence did the comic have, either within the Marvel Universe, on the comic comic medium, yeah, on the industry, industry, or maybe even pop culture, and do fans remember it with affection. And finally, 
Does the comic withstand the test of time? So is it something that holds up today outside of the original context of its publication? And is it something that you could see yourself reading over and over in the future? Do you want to go back to it? So is that's, it an evergreen yeah. story? Is it an evergreen? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an evergreen story. That's uh, an industry buzzword right now. Everybody, especially at DC, they're trying to come up with evergreen yeah. stories. So we're gonna start on our list. We're gonna we're not necessarily gonna go through the next five because uh, we've got a lot to say about comics. But we're we're gonna we'll see where we go. We're, yeah, we're, yeah, we're gonna organic. join us on this journey. Yeah, on our magic carpet ride. You know, join us in the gutters. <laughs> so coming in today at number twenty, what do we have, Albert? We have Ultimate Spider-Man by Brian Michael Bendis. And he's worked with a lot of different artists, which we're going to mention over the course of our analyses. But um, some of the more notable ones are are uh, Stuart Immonen, as well as Mark Bagley. Um, yeah, Mark Bagley. I mean, he and Bendis set a record for the most number of consecutive issues on a Marvel comic by the same creative team. I mean, they did 111 issues together. Stanley and Jack Kirby only did, I think, 104 issues of Fantastic Four. So, yeah, that, that's that's quite an accomplishment. Yeah, it's it's record breaking, most yeah. certainly. So, the basic premise of Ultimate Spider-Man is that it is a modern day retelling of the Spider-Man story. So, it's taking Spider-Man and putting context on it that's supposed to that was relevant to what it would be like to be a young superhero at the time. So this was around the early 2000s. Yeah, in 2000, the middle of 2000, I believe. Um, So in choosing this, we felt that one of the things that that stood out in terms of why we ranked it, the way we ranked it, was that the impact was probably the highest thing about this. Prior to Ultimate Spider-Man, I, I'm, the industry has time and time again tried to find new ways to repackage uh, these superheroes who have such a long history and so much uh, continuity. So every couple of years they try to find new ways to repackage them or repre- represent them so that a new generation of readers can come on board and enjoy them and rediscover what's so great about them. The thing that made Ultimate Spider-Man so impactful was the fact that it really resonated with the, the comic book masses at the time, as well as new oncoming readers. It really kind of just summed up everything that you needed to know about Peter Parker, and it filled in all the gaps and really just reinvigorated his origin story. Keep in mind that the original Amazing Fantasy story was how many issues? That was one issue. It was like half an issue. Yeah, it it told the original Spider-Man origin was about half an issue that like eleven or twelve pages or something. Yeah, like that. and that eleven of 12, eleven or twelve pages changed history. It, it introduced the world to Spider-Man. But reading it now after all this time, it's still good. But there were a lot of gaps and. The first arc of Ultimate Spider-Man, Brian Michael Bendis took 
six issues to tell that same story. So it really filled might in. Might have even been seven. Might have been seven, yeah. So it really filled in a lot of gaps and gave the readers more context and really updated his origin. Yeah, he fleshed it out. Yeah. Um, if, if in our first episode, we talked about the Ultimates, right? And they were a reimagining of the Avengers. And that wouldn't have happened without Ultimate Spider-Man to pave the way. Uh, this is a new continuity. Traditionally, uh, Marvel readers, fans regard the main universe with the numerical designation of the 616, right? So that's the 616 universe that you read in Marvel Comics. And when, when Ultimate Spider-Man first came out, that wasn't part of that 616 continuity. Yeah. It was its own thing. So you didn't have, you know, 40-something years of baggage of continuity. You didn't have to worry about all the different adventures and weird things that have happened to them over the years. It just started from the very beginning. Yeah, they were... This was going to be the first time that Peter Bar Parker got bit by the spider, the first time he received his powers, yeah. and you know the first time he faced all of his villains, but in the modern-day context. So yeah. everything was updated and given fresh eyes and more nuance, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, if you were a teenager growing up around 2000, you know, this would probably ring pretty true. Yeah. Um, it captured that... It that kept era. The, yeah, yeah, the feel of the time and the attitude of the, the era, exactly. Yeah, and, and honestly, I don't. I think even now, it still holds up. I mean, it's been, what, 17 years since the first issue came out, but it, he had a long run. Yeah. And if you, if you count uh, the Miles Morales Spider-Man that came out after this, uh, Bendis, he's been writing Spider-Man for 17 years or so. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of world-building on his part. Um. And keep in mind that this was the first comic in the Ultimates line. So yeah. it the the success of Ultimate Spider-Man really launched that entire line into just being. It, yeah. it could have very easily just been a couple of comics that they had limited themselves to, but the success of it and the other line uh, other comics in the Ultimate universe just did so well that it it just allowed Marvel Comics to launch this entire new imprint imprint of stories. And it was basically just Marvel retelling their old stories yeah. and finding a new way to market it to modern audiences. Yeah, and, and the, don't get us wrong, there are you know different twists and turns that will delight readers who are familiar with the old stories as well. But for the most part, they tried to aim these stories for people who were just willing to read about their favorite superheroes with fresh eyes. Yeah. You know, you're reading from the very beginning. Ultimate Spider-Man uh, was so popular, they ended up launching Ultimate X-Men. There was the Ultimates. The Ultimates, as we mentioned Ultimate earlier. Ultimate Fantastic Four. Ultimate Fantastic Four, yeah. So, in addition to its impact, we, if we're going to continue to go through the criteria, I think the next thing that we should discuss is... It's craft. Yeah. Um, the thing, uh, we mentioned this briefly earlier, but the thing that made Ultimate Spider-Man so great was that it, uh, again, Amazing Fantasy told the original origin story for Spider-Man was only, you know, it was half an issue or so. Yeah. But really, Brian Michael Bendis, as a writer, was able to give it a new voice and add additional context to it so that 
I'm, I still believe that Amazing Fantasy is a, just a classic comic book, but if you give that to a modern child, like, there's, there are some things that can't be helped, you know? It was written when it was written, and uh, any new person picking it up is going to have to read it with that context. So what Brian Michael Bendis did was really... I don't know if groundbreaking is the word, but it, it changed. It, it it definitely redefined Spider-Man for yeah. the modern era. His style was was up to date. Yeah, I mean, it, exactly. It, it's, it was fresh. Um, if you think about what was going on in Spider-Man comics at the time, do you remember in the late 90s, right before ultimate spider-man john byrne did something called chapter zero yeah right and that was sort of the same idea where yeah. he was taking spider-man and trying to tell a story about spider-man like his origins and you know from the beginning yeah. and that was a that was a failure it was a massive bust yeah like don't don't go out and seek it out <laughs> don't read it you know it's a yeah it's a waste of your time yeah so for marvel to come back and basically try a very similar, if not the same idea, but with a different creative team. It took a little faith, I think, on their part. And this was, you know, the Bill Genius and Joe Quesada era. They're, they're willing to, they were willing to take those chances and try different things. And Bendis, yes. he came out from the alternative comic scene. He was doing his own creator-owned stuff, uh, being published by Caliber and, and Image Comics, uh, doing things where... If you looked at a lot of comics before Bendis became popular with Ultimate Spider-Man, you'll notice a marked shift. You know, I guess this kind of goes back uh, to the aspect of impact, but Bendis's style of writing is very uh, number one. People would say it's it's decompressed because he takes out he takes a lot of story beats and really expands them and lets them breathe. You know, you'll have people talking. To each other for four pages and each page is just a series of panels with just their heads talking so people would people who didn't like his stuff would you know denigrate him by calling him a talking heads guy yeah because there was a lot of dialogue in his comics he always wrote a lot of dialogue he was he's always claimed to be heavily influenced by david mamet the screenwriter he tries a lot to impact or not impact but to mimic the way that Real, real conversations yeah. are supposed to go. Yeah. You know? You try I, to mimic human speech patterns. Exactly. My, granted, minus all of the ums and uhs and, you know, all the little ticks that people normally have in discussion. But, yeah. yeah. Go ahead. And, uh, for the most part, uh, Bagley was drawing it. I mean, I think when people look at Ultimate Spider-Man... They think of the Bendis and Bagley era. You know, that was when it was at the peak of its success and and popularity. And you gotta you gotta admit that both of those men have left their mark on the character of Spider-Man. Uh, they're probably the definitive Spider-Man creators of of this era. Yeah, the modern yeah comics age. Think about the past twenty to thirty years. Uh, Mark Bagley is probably the definitive Spider-Man artist. I I wouldn't say I'm particularly a fan of his, but I got to give it up to him, man. He's he was always on time. He was he beat his deadlines. I mean, he was drawing like 18 comics, 18 issues a year at some points, you know. He's a professional. Yeah. So, much respect to him and for keeping a consistent look. Yeah. 
he was able to get the job done. You know, he he might not be my favorite storyteller. He might not be my favorite artist, but I got to give it up to him for mm. for you know doing what's required of the story. Yeah. And he had, he and Bendis had synergy. They worked well together. Yeah. So. Most of the craft, I would say, or like where the craft is the strongest is on probably, especially in in regards to the fact that Mark Bagley drew so much of it, but most the, the strength of the craft is in the writing. Yeah. Uh, is just in Brian Michael Bendis' characterizations mm-hmm. and his... Uh, uh, his ability to capture and reintroduce, uh, capture, you know, the the core elements of Peter Parker as Spider-Man, as well as to reintroduce new elements into such a long pre-existing history. Mm-hmm. Um, the next criteria that we look at on our list is its originality, and uh, I personally didn't rank it too high on originality because, again, um, as I mentioned earlier, this is as good as it is. Ultimately, it is still a retelling of pre-existing uh, a, a retelling of Spider-Man's pre-existing history. Granted, uh, Brian Michael Bendis did find way clever ways of reintroducing old elements and making them fresh again. Yeah, he put new spins on a lot yeah, of different things. Exactly, you know. And he would, he would, I think it in some ways it kind of worked to his advantage where he was able to take our preconceived notions of classic villains and he would do something new with them. He would Yeah play around and, and give you something that was a little fresh and li- yeah. or at least a, a little different. I mean, let's look at Venom as an example. Yeah, that's a good example. Yeah, he's... A lot of people have, a, you know, affection for the concept of Venom, but it's a, it's a bit of a silly idea. He, it's. I guess everybody needs to have an evil clone version of them to fight. Yeah, <laughs> but even, even without that, it's like... Spider-Man goes off to space and fights, you know, in a secret cosmic war, and he comes back with this alien costume. Like, it's 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 a tough story to tell with Spider-Man because he's such a street-level character. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Brian Michael Bendis has the luxury of hindsight to work with. So he can he took the core concept of Venom and he said, "All right, let's." Let's let's strip it down and let's find a way to make it work and to integrate it into what we know of Spider-Man and not make it so outlandish. Yeah, you know. So uh, Drew. So he he ended up making the Venom symbiote uh, the result of an experiment between uh, when Peter Parker's father before he died. He was working for the government and and. Uh, I believe he was working with Eddie Brock's father, and they they basically created this Venom symbiote. You know, it's pretty much similar to the Venom symbiote that we're all familiar with, but Bendis took away that silliness of the uh, secret wars and, and all that. It's it's no longer a weird alien. Yeah. It's no longer an alien costume that bonded with yeah, his it's, it's, life biology. It's some sort of uh, bioweapon, essentially. Yeah. It's a yeah. bioweapon that... And more than that, I think what what really made it work was he tied the idea of Venom to Peter Parker's history. Yeah. The, it was that whole story, if you read uh, the Venom story arc, I think it was volume six in the run. It's a story about legacy. So he took Venom, who's a character that's pretty one note. You yeah. Know, he, he's just the guy who's... An evil, He's opposite looking... Spider-Man. Yeah, you know? exactly. And like the only reason, 
look, I, you know what, if you love him, fine, whatever, but, like, all, the, the reason I feel like a lot of people like him is mostly the optics. It's like, look at this guy, he's so metal, he's so, <laughs> so bad, he's so tough, he's like Spider-Man, but he's got teeth, and yeah. he eats brains, and, but beyond that, like, ask anyone, you know, what you know about him, and I, I don't think anyone can give you any kind of a description that really sells you on the idea. Like, yeah. If, if you actually, like, stood outside of yourself and tried to describe it to yourself, like, think about how silly it all kind of sounds. Yeah, at the end of the day, <laughs> Venom is basically a bad guy who just wants to eat Spider-Man's brains or something. Yeah, he's just a buffer Spider-Man. and it's, I don't know. Me, personally, I don't find that appealing. Yeah, it's not necessarily the most uh, intricate or, or yeah. deep concept, but... In Ultimate Spider-Man, when Bendis and Bagley introduced the Venom character, uh, they made him, they tied him into Peter Parker's history. And, and like I was saying, this, that whole story arc was about the concept of legacy. The legacy of Peter Parker's father and the legacy of Eddie Brock's father. Because Eddie Brock's father also worked on the project. Mm. And it became a story about, you know, what did the sons of the fathers do? And... It became a story about honoring what came, who came before you and, and doing the right thing. You know, both of these characters grew up without their father, and Peter Parker turned out, you know, pretty okay. He became a hero, and yeah. it became a story that, it was a story about heroism and, and how... What makes... Yeah, what, what makes, makes a hero. Spider-Man. Yeah, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man. And Eddie Brock didn't have that. He, he was the opposite. Spider-Man and, and, and Venom in that story, it, was, it wasn't a story where they were just punching each other in the head over and over again. It, yeah. was, it was more of a... I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure they did that too. <laughs> you can't, you but can't, he gave it meaning. Yeah, he gave it meaning. Michael Mendes gave it meaning. Um, and, you know, between the character interactions, the, like, it's easy to tell a story where, you know, two guys are just slamming each other with things or punching each other and it's like okay but if i don't care about the characters then what's the point exactly that's, so that's what fights in comic books in superhero comic books should yeah. always be about it yeah it, it's, it's not the just drama the, yeah it's not just the choreography yeah but it's it's about the characters and, and if you don't have the characters i don't really care about reading the fights you know another uh, high point that i wanted to mention was the volume uh well it's Volume 19 in the trade paperbacks, but it's the death of the Goblin. So if you know anything about Spider-Man, you know that uh, Green Goblin is kind of a major tentpole villain Mm -hmm. in his uh, history. And again, this is an example of just taking the pre-existing history and just... Giving it a new spin. Yeah, streamlining it and just making it... uh, Yeah, just giving it a new spin, exactly. So... So when uh, Brian Michael Bendis had the opportunity to write more than 100 issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, he he basically had the chance to do Spider-Man as an epic. Yeah. You know? So he... The, the current, ex- the current uh, Spider-Man that we have has this long history with the Green Goblin, but then uh, the problem is that that history is spotted 
with all this different it's mired, it's yeah, mired it's mired. crazy baggage. Yeah, crazy baggage from because like all these different writers came to it and like they would do different things and you know over the course of forty years a yeah. lot of stuff piled up and it it's just a lot of weird stuff. I mean yeah. they made at one point the Green Goblin, Norman Osborn, was dead. Yeah. And then he came back and it was revealed that he was behind Spider Man's clones and Yeah. Let's and then he had that. A, <laughs> yeah, well, okay, but it's just an example of, you know, the the issue with, you know, a long-running Spider-Man series. So when Brian Michael Bendis had that chance to do Ultimate Spider-Man, the great thing was he, ha he was the sole writer on it, and he was able to tell Spider-Man's story from beginning to end, mm -hmm. and it, it was just a lot more streamlined. So, you know, all that stuff about Gwen Stacy's, death or, uh, you know, the the rivalry between Spider-Man and Osborn. Like, the Ultimate Spider-Man comic is the best version of that story aside from the, the original stuff. Aside from, you know, the snippets that came out mm -hmm. from uh, the original comics. So, if you wanted to read a long-form version of that story that just was super streamlined and just kind of told... Self-contained. The arc, yeah, super self-contained and told the arc of Peter Parker, the Ultimate Spider-Man series was great at that. That's That was the, the great thing about what he did. Yeah. Um, and the final uh, criteria that we should go over uh, before we move on is its ability to withstand the, the test of time. Um, and I think that's kind of a good segue because, um, again, Brian Michael Bendis took Spider-Man and modernized it for... Current, uh, the current generation's mm -hmm. uh, taste and context. Yeah. You know? So I think he did an excellent job of just giving you a Spider-Man that sounded like you did. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I could definitely see myself reading again and again. Yeah. I think just in terms of Spider-Man comics, <laughs> this is probably the definitive run um, not to say that there are no other good Spider-Man comics that came out in the past 20 years or so. Yeah. Because there are. I mean, I like Paul <clears throat> Jenkins' run a lot. He did he did some great stuff. But for me, there's no real comparison uh, when you're talking about a really lengthy, substantial run of Spider-Man that you, you could read from beginning all the way to the end or just something that you want to read a, a random story story arc, you could pull out one of the volumes, one of the trades, and just check it out. Um, there's, a, there's a lot that stands out. I mean, you mentioned the Green Goblin story arcs. I mean, there were, he did a few of those throughout his run that were all pretty dramatic. Yeah. And things like uh, the ultimate version of the Sinister Six, yeah. which turned out to be a pretty big storyline crossing over with the Ultimates. And... You know, him working on it so long, there even came a point where he even started adding new things yeah. to the legacy of Spider-Man. Like, he, I, I'd say his work transcended uh, just Spider-Man, well, the Peter Parker Spider-Man, you know? Yeah. So, um, he definitely added something towards the end of the... Yeah, I'll, I'll just spoil the comic for them. All right. You know, it, it's already been something like five <laughs> years or something, but... He tells a story where Peter Parker dies. Yeah. Yeah. So if you if you just wanted a complete story about Spider-Man, this really starts from 
the beginning of Peter Parker's run as Spider-Man all the way up to his death. And then to a new Spider-Man. Yeah, that's the Miles Morales Spider-Man. Yeah. It, it was a new addition to the world. Yeah. All right. So moving on to our next comic. The next comic on our list coming in at 19 is New X-Men by Grant Morrison. And also, uh, this is a work that also has a slew of artists, but uh, the ones that I, I'd like to mention are Frank Quietly. Um, I like Chris Bacalo's work. Yeah, Chris Bacalo is very good as well. Um, probably some of the best that you I've seen from Phil Jimenez. Yeah, um, Ethan Van Syver. Ethan Van Syver, excellent artist. So, would you like to go, like, give a brief explanation or description yeah. of what New X-Men is? Sure. So, New X-Men began in the first half of 2001, I believe, and the first issue of Grant Morrison's run was issue 114. So if you guys remember, back in the 90s, Jim Lee and Chris Claremont launched X-Men number one. That was, I think it's still the greatest selling single issue of all time with like seven or eight million copies sold or something ridiculous like that. But anyway, that, that comic lasted up and up through the 2000s and... 2004. Yeah, and when Grant Morrison came on board, he uh, took over this X-Men series that had been pretty stagnant. I think we can all agree it was pretty stagnant. Yeah. And he reinvigorated it with a lot of juice. We, we talked about, we mentioned earlier how Bendis and Bagley did Ultimate Spider-Man early in the tenure of uh, the Bill Jemis and Joe Quesada era at Marvel. And this Grant Morrison run kind of is in the same vein. I mean, yeah. it, it's, in the, it's in the original 616 continuity, the original universe. But in terms of being a fresh start and starting anew, it pretty much meets that criteria. The, the writer, Grant Morrison, he, up to this point, he had been known primarily as a DC Comics writer. Mm. He wrote a lot of classics for DC. He, had, he wrote Animal Man, Doom Patrol, JLA, mm. some other Vertigo comics. So he, he was known as the DC guy. Yeah. And he didn't, really have his turn at Marvel superheroes uh, up until, well, I don't remember if this was his first Marvel, but it's the first Marvel that he wrote that I think really stood out. That yeah. It was it was the X-Men. Come on. I mean, everybody yeah. loves the X-Men. They've always been a perennial yeah. high seller. Keep in mind that, uh, again, like you said, you mentioned that up to this point, he had done work for DC Comics. Uh, keep in mind that the stuff that he had done for DC was not just good, it, this was stuff that was just out of the ballpark. It yeah. was, you know... Stuff that people regard as classics. Exactly. He, he, he's kind of, you know, just the guy, or one of the guys at DC. Yeah, he was, yeah. He's, he came out of that... Uh, the British, British invasion of the, exactly. of the 80s, right? You know, along with guys like Alan Moore and yeah. Neil Gaiman and Peter Milligan. He was known for not just writing good comics, but comics that were challenging as well. Yeah. Things that people hadn't really read or seen before. He really likes to play with the medium. Mm -hmm. um, it, I don't, I'm not saying that he doesn't do linear storytelling, but he really likes to move around with it and just te really test the boundaries of storytelling. 
Yeah, you know. I remember reading an interview with him once, and yeah. I don't remember which comic of his he was referring to, but he basically said that he didn't like comics that were too simple, and yeah. and he didn't like how people were complaining that his comics were confusing. Yeah. He basically said, if if my comics are too confusing, Granddad, don't read them anyway. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, so I. I, I kind of want to go back to what you were saying earlier uh, about the, the X-Men comics that were coming out at the time. So, up to, the, prior to this, I think Marvel's big move was, they had a bunch of years with guys like Scott Lobdell and Fabian yeah. Aziza, and, you know, just kind of doing a lot of big stories that were just meant to, you know... They were just meant for shock value. Things like, oh, we're going to pull the adamantium out of Wolverine's <laughs> claws or, you know, stuff like that. Just really silly. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know what the comic version of this, but it's like clickbait or something like that. <laughs> Whatever the comic book version of clickbait is. Um, so when Grant Morrison came on board with New X-Men, he... He... He kind of uh, simplified things a little bit. Yeah. You know, just took it back to basics. He acknowledged the history of the X-Men without getting bogged down in the convoluted yeah. aspects of it. Yeah, like, he didn't go back to each and every, like, ticky-tack detail to make sure, like, who was a clone and who married who, but ended yeah. up, you know, like... He, he just took the really big beats and found a way to make those grand, you know, really focus on the really main aspects of it. So, I want to go and uh, go through our criteria while we discuss this. Mm -hmm. um, so, the first thing is we should discuss the craft, which we, we did talk about a little bit uh, in terms of Grant Morrison's writing style. He... I, it's hard for me to really talk about the craft in terms of the art of the book because just due to a lot of... There were a lot of artists. Yeah, there were a lot of artists, and it's kind of a lot of inconsistency. So, unfortunately, in that regard, its craft has hurt a little bit. But Grant Morrison's writing is so strong that, you know, it's, it's hard to deny that it deserves to be one of the best, one of the top-rated Marvel comics of yeah. all time. Yeah, and I would probably say it's the greatest run of X-Men comics that there is. Yeah. The art, as you said, it's pretty inconsistent. This came out during a time when when uh, Marvel was really concerned about uh, meeting deadlines and even double-shipping books certain months of the year. Uh, you know, and I understand the importance of meeting deadlines, don't get me wrong. That That's important when you're putting out monthly periodicals, it sucks if you have to miss yeah. a month. Yeah. So there were times when they had to get fill-in artists, but sometimes even their fill-in artists needed fill-in artists. Yeah. There's that whole story about how Igor Cordy, uh, he's an artist who I think is unfairly reviled throughout the fandom because of what happened in his work on New X-Men. There's a story about how basically one of the artists who was supposed to originally draw the issue, couldn't meet the deadline, so Marvel, in a panic, they called up Igor Cordy and asked him to draw an entire issue, 22 pages, in a weekend. You know, I mean, that's that's not really physically easy, but somehow... Something is going to suffer. Yeah, somehow he was able to do it. He was a soldier. He did his best. And yeah. I, 
I still don't even think it, it looks that bad compared to some of the other artists we've seen. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you don't like it, I can understand it. And I think the work, overall, it, it's not his best work, and the comic kind of suffers for that at, at times. But, you know, that's just one issue, one example. Just a plethora of different artists they had. It, it all, I guess it all kind of depends on your taste. They all did different... They all had different styles. I mean, if you're comparing someone like Frank Quitely to Mark Silvestri, who did yeah. the last arc, you know? It's, they're pretty different yeah. styles of art. And Frank Quitely, he was definitely the best artist. And I, I do wish that he had yeah. been able to draw all of it. Just imagine how great this run would be if he did the entire series. But unfortunately, he, he only did a few uh, story arcs. Is there anything you can mention or anything that sticks out in your memory as an example of Grant Morrison's craft shining through in terms of his writing of the book? Just something that, yeah, that really is a high point in terms of his writing. Yeah, a couple things stand out. Uh, let me start by kind of briefly uh, summarizing the premise of the book. First of all, X-Men up to this point had been convoluted and filled with just tons of characters, you know. We were at a point where it's like, who isn't an X-Man yeah. at this point, you yeah. know? And Grant Morrison, he streamlined the team. He basically took the cast, whittled it down to a core. It was just Professor Xavier, Jean Grey, Cyclops, The Beast, Wolverine, and Emma Frost, who was also known as the White Queen. So he took that cast of characters and over the course of his run, uh, what was it, around 40 issues or so, he took them and gave everybody heart. He gave everybody... 41 issues, that's correct. Yeah, 41 issues. He, he gave everybody some heart, yeah. gave, gave them all a chance to shine. His first storyline was called E is for Extinction, and that's, hey, we're going to throw that word out again. It's an evergreen <laughs> X-Men story. <laughs> right, right. Eos for Extinction is a story that takes the X-Men, plays up the idea of, of mutants, not just as an allegory uh, for persecution, but he, he takes the concept of mutants and plays up the idea of, hey, it's cool to be a mutant, you know? I would say that his take on the mutants is... It, it, I, I think in a lot of ways it really does mirror the the struggle of like minorities. Uh, like he, I think to some degree he took the the allegory of you know being a minority and he modernized it. You know, yeah. Like you know, we can look at the struggle of minorities from that old narrative where it was at the time, which was oh they're persecuted and they're, um, you know, hated by society and, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 what's it called, the, the institutions of the world are just kind of against them, but, you know, that narrative evolves, you know, it, it's, it's not static and it's certainly not frozen in time, like we, even as we look at society, we, we can see that, uh, you know, there, a lot's changed from, you know, where Martin Luther King was to, you know, where African-Americans are today. And I think he, he modernizes a lot of those ideas. Yeah, he 
I think what stands out is the fact that he, like I said, he makes it cool to be a mutant, you know? Yeah. People, these, these characters are taking pride in, in who exactly. they are. They're taking pride in their uniqueness, the yeah. way that they were born and, and who they are. They're no longer... They're not ashamed. Yeah, they're no longer just victims or whatever. They're they're a part of society now. So, th- like, you have... They're cool. Like, like you said, it's cool to be a mutant, right? So now they're... You know, they're celebrities, they're athletes, and they're pop stars, and uh, mm-hmm. they, they work in fashion, you know? Yeah. And they're, they're uh, what's the word? They're influencers, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly, so go, go ahead. Yeah, um, as I was saying about his first storyline, E is for Extinction, he, he takes that basic premise, and the story is about, uh, at this point in Marvel Comics, mutants, there were... Millions of mutants living around the entire uh, on on the, in the world. Yeah, and like as they had their own nation, Genosha. Yeah. And the story starts off with basically uh, mutant hating uh, mastermind ends up sending sentinels to Genosha and wiping out the population. Because of that, they slaughtered what like 16 million people. Yeah, mutants. So. So, the mutant population on Earth has been severely... Uh, Decimated. Yeah. But, I, I, I also want to mention that he also introduces this other idea that, um, yeah, they're minorities, but their numbers are increasing. Mm-hmm. And what happens when the minority is on the verge of becoming a majority? Yeah, exactly. Which is, and that's which is kind actually of, a pretty big yeah. uh, idea to include... Or to introduce into the X Men like, yeah. world. It's, it's the idea that humanity is evolving into Homo Superior. Yeah. And that's why uh, and the then of the first yeah. story wanted to wipe out means, you know, yeah. to, to slow that progress down. Yeah. And on top of that, I I do I don't want to get on a soapbox or anything. So, but it's Just it's, get on a soapbox. it's it's hard to ignore that there's a lot, especially now in the current like political environment. It's hard to ignore that there's so much um, being reflected. Like in, in some ways, uh, New X Men is kind of ahead of its time yeah. in that regard. Like the idea that the minorities are soon to be the majority, and like nothing exists in a vacuum. So what happens? to the majority that's still just clinging on to their majority, right? Yeah. Like, they're, they're going to push back. Mm-hmm. And that's that's what this... that's I'd say that's the vibe of the book, is, you know, um, the, the mutants, the mutant minority is on the verge of becoming the standard, the normal. Yeah. And they're... It, it's, it's a different kind of dynamic than the original idea of what the X-Men was, which was, oh, we're just really in the minority, and we're just constantly being persecuted. It's a different, it's still persecution, but it's a different kind of persecution. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good point, because uh, what you're describing, particularly, that came out of the Chris Claremont era, you know, he was the one who, I think, really grabbed that, that, that idea, yeah, yeah. And just played up the idea of, of the X-Men as this persecuted minority, and, and they're an allegory for any minority have you read, uh, what, man, wait, love God, like, oh, God loves, God loves, God loves, <laughs> I mean, that was the story, that like, was by Claremont, that was by Claremont, but it's lauded by a lot of people as, like, this, 
evergreen <laughs> X-Men story because it, it it sums up the plight of the X-Men as equivalent to the plight of minorities in America. You yeah. Know, just, you know, people are persecuting them and, like, they get attacked in the streets, stuff like that. I mean, that's... A lot of that came from uh, that comic or Claremont's run on that comic where he just really really brought a lot of attention to that idea of the X-Men as mm -hmm. an allegory for minorities. Yeah. But what Morrison did, I, I thought it was a really good... It was an evolution of the concept, yeah. you know? And it really does reflect a lot of the current political environment. Or, you know, just... It, I, I think a better way to put it is, I think he really captured um, the sentiment of people... Like, I feel like Morrison understood, like, how people, how their fears evolved in regards yeah. to that subject, you know? Yeah, he did a really good job with that. Yeah. And, and even, even just in addition to the greater themes like that, he, he didn't disrespect or disregard uh, the history of the X-Men. I mean, if you look at his run overall, he actually pays homage to a lot of the, the you know, X-Men tentpoles, so he's got the story with Magneto, he's got the story with the Shi'ar and the Imperial Guard. There's a love triangle. Like There's a love triangle. Scott Summers, Jean Grey, Wolverine. Like, like Emma Frost. And Emma Frost. I mean, like... That's a square, I guess. It's two triangles when you put them together. Oh, yeah, yeah. That makes a square. So it's, oh, two yeah. tri it's a love... Two triangles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two love triangle. <laughs> well done. <laughs> So, moving on from Kraft, um, I, I want to discuss the originality of the new X-Men comic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, again, I, I do think it's similar to what I was saying about Ultimate Spider-Man in the sense that Grant Morrison is just... I don't think he can be too original with the comic because it is still, at the end of the day, just an X-Men comic. So, he there are are certain edicts that I'm sure he had to adhere to. Yeah. And, you know, there's still certain things about the X-Men that he had to, you know, he's that working, it had to be. He, he, it's almost like you're saying he's working, he had to work within a certain set of limitations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, w I will say, even in spite of that, Grant Morrison got a Grant Morrison. Yeah. So, like, he, he takes that, you know, his writing to the nth degree, and he's going to do his X-Men, his way, and he has a very particular vision for what the X-Men are about, and I think he communicates that, like, excellently, you know, so, like, even even though it's not the most original thing, he's still, he's still really original with it. Yeah, and I think some of the different messages that he uh, was conveying in some of the different stories, some of them still stand out to me, you know, um, I think overall... Just that, like, the overarching theme, I guess, uh, you could say, is just looking forward to tomorrow, right? Just yeah. the idea that the future is always coming, things are always changing, and change is good. Uh, I look at the, the title of his last story, it was called Here Comes Tomorrow. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, in a way, it feels like that's not merely just the title of the story, but that's a proclamation of what the X-Men should be. And it's ironic that 
after he left, the X-Men went back to yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's the comics industry. They're yeah. very concerned with maintaining a status quo in spite of the fact that they're constantly saying that they're breaking the status quo. Yeah. It's breaking the status quo within the confines of a more acceptable status quo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's the status quo within the quo. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Even one of his stories, uh, what was it called? Uh, Planet X, his big Magneto story. If you read that story, it it really feels like it's a meditation on the cyclical nature of superhero comics in general, right? You you have the the idea that this villain that they've that the X Men have fought dozens of times over and over throughout the years, he's come back and. What's he gonna do that he hasn't already done before? Yeah, there's a there's a real sense of there, it's of ridiculous. It, it's there's not, yeah. He Morrison conveys that if you read it, Morrison conveys this sense of ennui. Yeah, you know, just the sense that this is a repetitive nature. What can we do to break out of this cycle? Yeah. And what Morrison does, he ends up having at the end of the story, he has Wolverine literally slice Magneto's head off. Yeah. You know, how do you come back from being decapitated? And I don't know if Morrison, I don't know exactly what his intentions behind that move were. I mean, he had to know that you can't just kill Magneto and, and yeah. have it be that. But I thought it was funny because anybody else who came after Morrison and wanted to bring back Magneto had to bend over backwards to find a way to be like, yeah. he had an anti-head cutting off <laughs> ring that allowed it so that when someone cuts off his head, it doesn't kill him. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, you, no matter what, you're going to look stupid. Yeah. And, yeah, I know what you mean. Like, There's some metatextual commentary to yeah. that whole event. Yeah. You know, it's like Morrison knows, I know you guys at Marvel, you guys are going to change what I do, but I'm going to do something... That when you do change it, you're going to look ridiculous. And it just kind of proves his point. Exactly. Right? He wins. Yeah. Like, uh, essentially what he's saying is, you know, in real life, like, our conflicts have an end. Yeah. You know, there's resolution. But the way that the comics industry tells its stories, the way that, you know, the X-Men always have to every couple years have some reason to fight Magneto. They're Looney Tunes characters. It's constantly the Roadrunner and the Coyote just yeah. over and over, like, trapped in, like, purgatory, just damned to do this for all eternity over and over again. And um, there's an absurdity to the industry. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, I, I, I get that. This work that Morrison did, it stands alone, though. So you, if you read that from beginning to end, you will get one really satisfying story. Right. Um, the next uh, criteria that we want to look at is the impact. So I, uh, I felt like amongst comic circles, amongst writers and creators, I felt like new X-Men actually left a pretty big impact. Yeah. Um, even in terms of popular culture, like, this came out around the time of the movies, right? Yeah, the very first X-Men movies from Fox. Yeah, so a lot of their designs uh, for the X-Men... Yeah, like, I don't remember which one came first, right. but there are some some similarities in the sense that 
in the movies, right? They they all wear they're all leather wore, clad. Yeah, they all wore leather. They all had it was more of a kind of a uniform where everybody had yeah. a similar outfit. Whereas in the comics up to that point, for a long time, the X Men were just wearing costumes. Yeah, their own unique costumes. And yeah. New X Men comes out and Frank Quigley redesigns them. Everybody's wearing. These day glow yellow X's with on their jackets, on yeah. these black leather jackets, except for Emma Frost, who's barely wearing anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have any opinions of what sort of impact it left on the industry in terms of like other writers moving forward from from uh, his run? Here's the thing: I, I do believe that other writers looked very favorably on his run. Yeah, he is Grant Morrison after all. Yeah. But in terms of writers taking what he did and, you know, continuing what he did yeah. or continuing the spirit of what he did, I don't think any, I can't think of anybody that really succeeded in accomplishing that yeah. because after, right after he left, Marvel basically went back to a very traditional style of X-Men yeah. storytelling. And they might have taken, they might have kept some of the trappings of his work, yeah. such as the cast, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, another spoiler, uh, but Jean Grey also dies during Morrison's run because she's the Phoenix. Yeah. So he did his Phoenix story as well. Yeah. But you know that was something that probably lasted a little while longer than I expected it to. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of surprised that. Well, recently they solicited a story where they're going to bring her back. Yeah, but even so, like, I'm surprised it lasted as long as it did. Yeah, it's been over ten years. Yeah, and they kept trying to find ways around it. They like, brought back a time-displaced yeah. teenage version of Jen. <laughs> so, comics, everybody! <laughs> it's a, it's a well-regarded book, I think, in, in, in terms of how critics like, view it. Yeah, like, critically speaking, it's, yeah. it's pretty high up there. Like, I... I, I don't know. I mean, the writers that came after him were good, too. Um, I don't know if they drew direct influence from him, but I do think Joss Whedon, um, even in the things that he didn't do, that I, I do think that that was a byproduct of what he did know of New X-Men, you mm -hmm. know? Like, I, not everything has to be about one writer mimicking or expanding upon yeah. what another writer does, but sometimes True. their reaction to what a writer does mm -hmm. is is just as much of an influence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of broader influence beyond that, it's, it's hard for me to say uh, how much impact yeah. this had because... It's kind of limited. Uh, yeah, at the end of this run... I guess Grant Morrison kind of yeah. had a falling out with Joe Quesada, who yeah. was the, at the time editor in chief of Marvel Comics, yeah. and he didn't. He hasn't gone back to Marvel ever yeah. since. Yeah, yeah. You know, he did this run on X Men. He did a Fantastic Four miniseries early on, uh, Marvel Boy. Yeah. Uh, but people haven't. I don't. I feel like people haven't really taken too much of the things that Grant Morrison did, and in X Men, in new X Men. Yeah. And, and kept them, you know. Yeah. What Phantomex, I think, is probably the one that stands out. He yeah. created that character, and that character is still around. And I think even amongst the fan base, I, I don't... It's hard for me to say that I've come into contact with too many people that 
look at this as you know a definitive X Men. It's, yeah. it's rare. Yeah. To be honest, I, I think the two of us are outliers in this regard. Yeah. The the common fan would regard Chris Claremont's X Men, Uncanny X Men, yeah. as you know the definitive X Men run. And I even go as far as to say that a lot of people would probably claim the stuff that Scott Lobdell did, you know, as, <laughs> oh, you know, man. the X-Men. That's the X-Men to them. Like, you know, yeah. they, they, they got a lot, they generated a lot of love for those those comics. Yeah, and I don't understand. Unfortunately, a lot of fans seem to, at least on the internet, a lot of fans seem to regard new X-Men with a little bit of contempt. Yeah. You know, they're saying it's too weird or he disregarded everything that came before, but I really don't agree with that. I mean, the, Grant Morrison is weird, but he also acknowledges and understands that the X-Men are weird. Yeah. You know? And to be honest, this isn't even the weirdest thing that it's he's not. Doing. It's not. Not by any means. This is a really straightforward comic. Yeah. If you actually analyze it, there's nothing too challenging in terms of his storytelling techniques. It's a pretty... Easy to follow story. It's not one of his more challenging Vertigo works, yeah. where you actually have to concentrate and well, multiple readings. I, uh, I I disagree with that a little bit. Like there are some things about New X Men where I do feel like after I'm done reading it, I actually do have to sit and kind of think about it. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's not as straight. For Grant Morrison, it's straightforward, but yeah. it's not as straightforward as, you know, your average X-Men comic. It's not as straightforward as your average superhero comic, which is That's fair. bad guy bad, good guy good, you know? Now like, they fight. Yeah, now they fight happy. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So, moving on, uh, I want to discuss the new X-Men's ability to withstand the test of time. Um just my two cents on the subject. I do think that in some ways Grant Morrison's for the lack of a better word weirdness does really put the comic outside of time. Mm -hmm. You know, he it's not mired in you know, dated language or anything like that. So it's just... He writes sharp dialogue. Yeah, he writes sharp dialogue. It's to the point. It's, what are your thoughts on its ability to withstand the test of time? Well, it's already been out for, what, close to around 15 years or so? Yeah. Thereabouts, roughly. Uh, and it's it's the X-Men run that I frequently go back to. Yeah. I, I pull it off my shelf every so often just to relive different scenes and, and flip through it and just lose myself in the memory of what it was like to read these stories for the first time yeah. and just being surprised by them again. Yeah. And I think because it's an X-Men story that also has something deeper to say about society and humanity in general, it's something that will last the test of time. It's something that you can read in the future and glean insights from it. You know, it, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, it's still... A superhero comic with people with fantastic powers who are punching the snot out of other people with powers, but those comics are a dime a dozen. Yeah, you know you can find those. That's the industry yeah, standard. That's that's what. Yeah, exactly. That's the industry standard, and this run on New X Men 
is beyond that. It's yeah. something that gives you more to chew on as you read it. You yeah. gain more from it. And you're enriched by the experience of it. And like I mentioned earlier, like I really do feel like Grant Morrison was ahead of his time, if anything, in writing it. Mm-hmm. Just, again, just I'm going to get on a soapbox a bit, but just looking at how in modern times, just how people have responded to race relations in the modern era, those sentiments are captured in this new X-Men run. He, he understood people, man. Or yeah. he, he understands people. And I really do feel that, if anything, uh, watching it with modern eyes and modern context, um, you learn a lot. Like, it, it's... it's I th- it's something that rewards uh, future reads. Yeah, you know, it's you, something that's aged well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's gotten better with he, time. He wasn't wrong in his analysis of people. Yeah. <laughs> <in his comic laughs> book. All right. So. Uh. Well, that's about an hour already. Okay. Um, we could wrap things up for this episode. Thanks for listening. Today we talked about Ultimate Spider-Man and New X-Men. Yeah, two great runs of recent memory. These are comics that left an impact, for sure, yeah. in Marvel Comics. And if you haven't read them, check them out. And if you have read them already, okay, dig them out and relive the memories. Enjoy yep. them again. Yep. Those were number 20 and number 19 on our list. And our next podcast will continue to count off our next favorite comics. Yeah. Our, ne- our next uh, top 25 Marvel comics. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. You're listening to Between the Gutters. Thank you, guys. Coming at you straight out of San Francisco. Be well. Peace.